Today we're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord from the dead, and so we're going to be setting aside our study in the book of Luke this morning, and we're going to focus on just three verses in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 5. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Many of the verses that we have this morning will be on the uh, screen there. However, I think it's great to be in the discipline of opening up our own Bibles and being familiar with them. Amen? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-5. I'm going to read. It says, Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray. Lord God, we want to thank you for this passage of Scripture. And we ask, Lord, now that as it is already inspired, Lord, that as I proclaim it, that you would do your work in the hearts of your people. And I pray those that are not yours this morning would be drawn by your grace to the Savior, the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, who is bigger than any sin, who is more powerful than any problem, and who promises that eternal reward which is with Him. And so I ask this this morning that you give us ears to hear. In the name of Jesus, amen. Peter is an apostle. He was one of the original people who saw Jesus Christ. Uh, He lived with Him He saw him die. He saw him rose again. He's an eyewitness to his resurrection. That's when an apostle was chosen by Jesus, set apart. And after several years later, actually, he's writing 1 Peter. And he's writing to Christians who had undergone persecution in Jerusalem because of that persecution. Their land had been taken from them. They had been removed from their families, and they had been scattered abroad. And so that's why in verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 1, he calls them exiles who are scattered. And so Peter's writing to this persecuted Christians living in foreign lands to remind them all that God has secured on their behalf through the resurrection of their Savior. And so in verse 1, of first, uh, sorry, in, the, <clears throat> in verse 3 of 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter begins to praise God. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to realize when you read this verse that this is the verse that all the other things after it are connected to. Peter just starts and he says, praise God, the Father in, you know, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he starts listing all the reasons why that this persecuted church, this church that's going through a hard time, this church that's displaced from their homes, should be praising God. How many of you got situations going on in your life this week that you necessarily aren't going, yeah, praise God? Anybody? Legs not working anymore. Marcus can stand up. <clears throat> I, was, I was joking with him when he came to my office. I'm really sorry I'm late. And I'd already seen the text. I'm like, you're fired. I was kidding. <laughs> 
<laughs> I just wanted to, you know, add to the drama of the day for him. No. These persecuted Christians are living in those foreign lands. And Peter starts and says to them, Praise be the God of our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Peter's saying, Listen up, church. I know you've been persecuted and kicked out of your homes and you're going through some really hard times in this life, but there are reasons for your praises to rise to God in the midst of your circumstances. There are things that God has done on your behalf that He has secured that supersede your difficult and tumultuous times. And yet those are temporary circumstances. There are things God has done for you that have been finished, that are yours. And I want to remind you of them. Praise be to God. And so in the second half of verse 3, Peter begins to lay them out, these reasons to praise God no matter what. And so Peter begins in that second half of verse 3, in his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's a lot in that verse, and you know I could spend probably five years on it. But the, the primary focus of reasons to give praise to God in that verse is that God has given them new birth. God has given them new birth. What does that mean? What does new birth mean? Why is that important? Why should this cause Christians to praise God in such difficult times? Good questions that I wrote down for myself. But Jesus explains what this new birth is, and I think the best place to jump to is John chapter 3. So flip left to John chapter 3, keep a finger in 1 Peter, and we're going to be in verses 3 through 8. In John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to a guy named Nicodemus, and it's at night, so yes, we call it Nick at night. It happens all, you guys keep laughing, I do it like every other week. And Jesus is speaking to him, and we're going to pick up in mid-conversation in verse 3, John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus replied, Very I tr- truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Jesus is making a statement above statements. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. The reason that the new birth that God has given us is so important because, is because without it, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I know there's a whole other sermon on what is the kingdom of God, right? And that's what the Bible should do. It should invoke a bunch of questions to where we start searching and God shows us a bunch of things about Himself. I'm not going to go into that this morning. Without, the, the, without being born again, no one can see the kingdom of God. And Jesus says that you must be born again to see it. But Nicodemus, he doesn't understand this. What in the world are you talking about being born again? Verse 4, Nicodemus says, How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asks. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. I mean, he's like going, that's ridiculous. You're saying we've got to be born again. Nicodemus is thinking physical birth. 
Being born again physically, that is not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus answered in verse 5, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to what? Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again, Nicodemus, teacher of Israel. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it will be with everyone born of the Spirit. New birth is not being born physically a second time. Obviously, that's not what Jesus is talking about. New birth is being born spiritually. It is a work that God does in a person that they cannot do in themselves. Jesus says that flesh gives birth to flesh. By the very fact that you are in this room, you have experienced flesh giving birth to flesh. You had parents. They made a decision, and here you are. Correct? Flesh gives birth to flesh. How many of you signed up for that? How many of you decided, hey, I want to be born? You didn't have anything to do with it, did you? Very interesting. Flesh gives birth to flesh. But Jesus says here in verse 6 that the Spirit gives birth to what? Spirit. In other words, this isn't something that you can produce within yourself. God, who is Spirit, has to give you this new birth. A spiritual birth. And Jesus says you must be born again spiritually or you will not see the kingdom of God, which is spirit. And Peter says that God has given you this new birth. You are born again. You will see the kingdom of God and that is reason to rejoice. And Peter says, I know you have it bad. I know that things are difficult and rough here. But you have reason to praise God because He has given you new birth. You have been born again, born of the Spirit. You've been born into the family of God. So the new birth is being born spiritually. Now, why is that a reason to rejoice? So what? Jesus says, you must be born again. Well, I don't want to. Many of us just walk by and say, Well, that's not for me. That's just for you. Jesus says, unless this happens, you will not receive this. Why is that important? That's important to flesh that out. Let me read the first several verses in Ephesians chapter 2. So now we're flipping right. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, to give us some context as to why being born again is so crucial, so important. Why did Jesus emphasize this? This is the Apostle Paul writing to a church in a city called Ephesus. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Paul describes all people before they experience this new birth as spiritually dead. And the result of that spiritual death is a, re- is a life that reflects it, which is called a life of sin. You know, we don't sin 
You know, when we sin, we don't become sinners. We sin because we're sinners. That is our nature. That is who we are. There's a saying on earth. I don't know if anybody's heard it. Nobody's perfect. Yeah, God says, basically, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're talking about moral perfection. Let me give you a definition of what sin is. I like John MacArthur's definition here. He says, sin is any personal lack of conformity to the moral character of God or the law of God. Then sin is a disposition of of the heart. It is a bent. It thinks evil, it speaks evil, it acts evil, and it omits good. Now you might be going, but I'm not as bad as that guy. That's not the standard. God says, I'm the standard. How many of us like to, you know, make ourselves feel better by looking at people who aren't, you know, you know, never mind, I won't go into it. Just me. (laughs) You're not the standard. God is standard. And when he says, do not lie, he means do not lie. How many of us have lied? And those of you who aren't raising your hands, we all join in. <laughs> We've all lied, right? Sin is what we do because that's who we are. Spiritually dead. We're spiritually dead. That's who we are. We don't have to teach our kids to do good as much as, as we, well, they just mimic what we do have to teach our kids to do good is what I'm saying is that we have to tell them what not to do because they naturally rebel, don't they? Why? Because they're like you. <laughs> they're like me. They're little sinnerlings. They're offspring of me. And of course we give them grace because they look like us and all that stuff. But don't they get under your skin, especially when they start doing stuff that you do? Anyone else or your spouse? Yeah, it's connected. They're by nature that way. We have to teach them to do good, to restrain evil, don't we? But that is not what would happen if you just let them go. It would all be about who? Them. Forever. And we're running into a society full of thems, lovers of self. Sin is what we do because that's who we are, spiritually dead. We are so far from God who is pure and holy and good. And so Paul describes us in Ephesians 2 as dead in our sin. Verse 2, in which you used to live, he says before, before the new birth, you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. You were under the power of the enemy. You were caught up in the world. And he talks about him being the spirit who now works in those who are disobedient. So there's the enemy working in the world, playing upon your fallen nature, using the world to draw and lure you towards things that are contrary to God's glory. If we're trying to get our moral standard from the world, that's silly. We get it from God. And so we are flesh. We're born of flesh. We act according to the flesh. And we want nothing to do with the life of the Spirit, the things of God. We don't. Only when it's convenient for us. We're dead. That's what the Bible says about us. How many of you are offended by that? I am. I'm a good guy. Anybody else? Yeah. According to me. 
In verse 3, he goes on, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving what? Wrath. Oh, Matt, you're now going old school Bible on me. I want to talk about not that. Paul says that before we were born again by God's Spirit, we were the walking dead, basically. We were ruled by our fleshly fallen nature, our natural nature. This means that we were a slave to our desires and our cravings, and we were ruled by our appetites. We were spiritually dead. We could not follow God, and we were incapable of doing so, and we didn't desire to. In fact, we lived as his enemies, and Paul says that we were, by very nature, children of wrath. We were God's enemies. In other words, before we were born again, we were totally God's enemies. If you've sinned against God, you've become his enemy. We are all, by nature, sinners. And I know we don't want to hear about this, but I'm drawing a parallel. Why is it important to be born again? From God's perspective, forget about what you think. I want to know the guy who made the rules. We were his enemies just waiting to receive his judgment. And there's nothing we could do about it. That's our nature. We're dead. Life has to come penetrate the death in order for, left, for that death to be changed. Something outside has to come in. And I don't know about you, but if the Bible says we're all dead, it's not going to come from you. not going to come from me. And some of you are here this morning, and you were in that very position. You're dead, and I was too, totally, absolutely, 100% dead. But Ephesians 2 doesn't stop there, and I don't want you to turn off your ears and start going, "Eh." listen for a second. Ephesians 2 doesn't stop there at us deserving God's wrath. Verse 4, but because of his great love, For us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Amen. Why would God reach out to his enemies? Amen. Why would he reach out to them? Would you? How many of you are into like extending mercy to jihadists who seek to destroy your way of life, who live contrary to what you think? You know what I'm just saying? Take some kind of example, some polar opposite, someone who just would cause you harm and live contrary to your life. And, and yet God reached out into that and he extended mercy and grace to his enemies. Why? He gave us new life. In that nature, Ephesians 2, 4 says, because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, he made us alive in Christ. He gave us new life, a new nature because of his love. So God loved us when we were his enemies. Some of you are sitting here this morning and going, you know, you're just, you've been opposed to God. Do you know that God desires to save his enemies? Why? Because 
he loves. And that love was demonstrated in his mercy towards us. Peter says there back in 1 Peter chapter 1, where we are this morning, in his great mercy he has given us new birth. Mercy is withholding what one deserves. Withholding what one deserves. How many of you would like to experience mercy? Anybody need a little mercy this week? Don't want to get what you deserve. Anybody? I do not want to get what I deserve. Amen? Please, Lord, no. And this is what we learn about God. God is merciful. That is His very nature and very being. Any mercy that has ever existed has come from Him. He is mercy. That's where it comes from. That is His very nature. We have broken God's laws. We have uh, lived in rebellion and we deserve wrath. But God loved us and His great mercy has given us a new birth. He gave us a new nature, His nature, that new life, His life. And those who have experienced this new birth know that it was definitely not of themselves, but it was because of His great mercy, His grace that saved us. My sin was great, but his mercy was greater. Amen? Amen? Yes, we rejoice in that. And that is the reason for these Christians to praise God, that no matter what circumstances surrounded them, what they were going through, God had given them new life, a life that would be go beyond this one. But we must understand, and this is the heart of the good news of the gospel, that God, just because He's merciful, can't just say, your sins are forgiven and you're good to go. He can't just say that. That would be totally against His nature, because for Him to do that would be unjust. <clears throat> because not only is a God, of, God of, of mercy and love, He's also a God of justice. And you can't separate that and, and, and omit that, which we've tried to do in this culture and pretend like God is not a just God, that His laws are kind of like the laws of California that change when everybody else changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. When He means it, He means it. And when we break it, there's a penalty. God is just like that. And so sin requires something. Sin requires death. God said the punishment for sin is death. And here's the kicker. It's not our definition of death. It's His definition of death, which is eternal separation from Him. So we literally are the walking dead. So how does God execute His justice and yet at the same time extend His mercy and love? He's got a problem. How does that happen? Anybody got an answer? How does God execute the justice because we've all sinned? It must be paid for, each one of you. But He also desires that you'd be saved. How does that happen? Where does the justice of God and the love of God meet? At the cross. For God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, His sinless, perfect Son. We are all guilty. He is innocent. 
God's love and His justice that met at the cross. God sent His only Son, Jesus, who was sinless and innocent, unlike us, to die on behalf of those who would believe upon Him. He willingly took their place of punishment, your place, my place. So Jesus received what we deserved, what I deserved, the wrath of God. God, His just wrath was satisfied. Not that He had joy in it, but He was satisfied. It was what was deserved came about in Jesus Christ when He was crucified on our behalf. This is why Jesus is our Savior. What does He save us from? He saves us from death. He saves us from the punishment. He saves us from eternal separation from God. We can't Dismiss that. That is the heart of the gospel. There is a substitute for sin, for your sin, for my sin. Without it, there is no good news. He saved us from the punishment of our sin, which is that eternal separation from God in hell. And yes, I said the word hell. It's real. And God so much wanted to save that He sent His only Son to die on your behalf and rejecting His Son deserves nothing but the logical conclusion, which is separation. And this is why Jesus said in John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains upon them. John 3, 36, write it down. And this is why you must be born again. See how important that is? You must be born again. If you're not born again, if your sins have not been substituted, if you have not applied faith in Christ, the wrath remains upon you. And you will not see the kingdom of God. You will be eternally separated from God. This is the gospel, church. This is the good news. What's the good news? That He saved us from that. Amen. (laughs) Praise God. And not only that, We are acquitted of all of our charges and then we are adopted into the family of God by that new birth. The judge says, innocent, because someone else paid it and he goes, I'm adopting you now. And all that is mine is now yours. My goodness, the thing you didn't have, it's yours. My kingdom, it's yours. You're my child. I bought you. But why? Because I love you and I am merciful. And no one can take you out of my hands. And now, we once who were enemies of God have become the children of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have become His sons and daughters. And we are born again through faith in God's work on our behalf. That's the only way a person is saved. Not by works, but by trusting in what God already did for us. That work. And... God did the work, just real quickly, and we simply, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. We're saved by grace through faith. And I don't know about you, but that is a good reminder and a good reason to rejoice that I have new life. I've been given new life. You have new birth through faith. And so in his great mercy, First Peter, he has given us new birth into a living hope. And real quickly, new birth, being born again by God produces a living hope in you. Before we are born again, 
and many of us are experiencing it today, our hope is really a dying hope. Anybody else feel that in your life? It's a dying hope. And really, uh, if you're honest, as you live and you experience more of this earth, the ultimate hopelessness of this world becomes much more pressing. And we seek to escape more and we seek to, you know, find meaning in things. And that's why people are going to Mars. They've already done earth. There's nothing more here. Time to go to Mars. And I think as our children are even living faster and harder lives and earlier things, they're be, they're, that threshold where it used to hit you later, the midlife crisis is now like at 15 or whatever it is. They've done it all. And the frustration is coming much faster these days. And as the money and the relationships and traveling and all the toys, they lose their allure, we realize that nothing ultimately satisfies. I'm not trying to bum you out this morning. But how many of you realize that that is kind of a, of, of a truth that you kind of push away and, and hope to not face and realize? Anybody else experience that a little bit? Okay, all five of us, let's talk afterwards and the rest of you are good to go. But... You know, we come to that realization as we get older that the world is not all it's cracked up to be, right? And like this is the tale of Peter Pan in Neverland. Adults couldn't go there. Why? Because it was a place where it didn't stop going. Everything was new and fresh and it could be whatever you wanted it to be. That's not real. That's Neverland. But those writers were writing something because they understood something about life. And all that we work for and the time spent in your significance and all our failings uh, in our health is all wrapped up in this world. We realize soon enough we're going to be gone. It's not going to be that significant. I hope you're bummed. I hope you're so bummed that you realize that it's a dying hope. It's not to mean that we aren't in it, but why are we in it? Why are we here? Peter says to those who are born again, not so with you. Not so with you. You have been born into a living hope, an enduring hope, not a dying hope. Your hope will not end with this life. Your hope does not end when you get cancer. Your hope does not end when your minivans are crushed. (laughs) Your hope does not end when people fail you and relationships fall apart and you're kicked out of your homes and you no longer have your land and your possessions your family doesn't like you because you follow Christ. Your, Your hope isn't totally wrapped up in this world. Do you understand what I'm talking about, church? It's an enduring hope. How is this possible? What is he peddling? Everything ends. That's Ecclesiastes, if you've never read the book. I'm just repeating this to you, the vanity. You wonder why people who are highly successful and very famous often struggle so deeply. Take a note. Because they've gone to the end of the rabbit trail, there's nothing else to do, and it's empty. Because that was never designed to fill their lives. 
Peter says that God, in his great mercy, has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. All of us die except one. Jesus died, but he didn't stay in the ground, did he? What happened to him? He rose again. Jesus, the Son of the living God, who died for our sins, was buried and yet rose from the grave three days later, witnessed by people, seen it, recorded. History, secular history. Jesus has power over death. Jesus has power over your death. Wow. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, speaking to Mary, the sister of Lazarus, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Her brother had just died. How is Jesus going to demonstrate this truth that I have power over death? And Mary goes, you know, I know that that will happen at the resurrection. And Jesus wants you to know, you know, before that he goes, I just want you to know right now I am the resurrection and the life. I've got power right now. Lazarus, get up. And he came out. That was an illustration. I like his illustrations. That's so we can look upon that and go, wow, he has power over death, my death. He has power to raise me up because I believe in him. Whoever believes, uh, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And he says to her, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Jesus gets real personal with these questions. It's not about the masses. It's about you. Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead and that he has power, that his sin I mean, that your sin was paid for by him on the cross. Do you believe? In John 5, 21, Jesus said, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, I'm reading this to you, even so the Son gives life to whom it pleased him to give it to. Wow. It pleases the Father to raise people from the de- uh, to give people new life. It pleases Jesus to give new life. To those he pleases, it pleases him to, and he's in the business of giving people new life. That's what he longs to do. It pleases Jesus to give eternal life to those who believe upon him, that he died in their place and rose again. If you believe this morning, you have that living hope. It is yours. It is an enduring hope, an everlasting hope, and Jesus will raise you from the dead to be with him forever. His words, not mine. Amen. Yeah, totally. It's okay to clap for Jesus. Amen. And Peter says that not only do we have that living hope through the resurrection, so we will never die, but also verse 4. So what if we never live? What's, What's after? And here he goes. We are born into an inheritance that can never perish. Spoiler fade. We're almost there. We're almost at the end. Hold on. Lock in. Ready? When we're born again by God's Spirit, who is eternal, we have His life. It is eternal life. 
And when we are born again, we are now children of God, and therefore we have an inheritance given to us by God. How many of you give your inheritance to the kid down the street? Nobody, hopefully, right? You give it to your kids, the people you love, the people you choose to give it to, amen? You have an inheritance. Just as you have eternal life that will not end, you have an inheritance that never perish, spoil, or fade. It can't do those things. This is one of the things about this life along with our bodies. Everything is under entropy. Everything perishes, spoils, or fades. It does. I mean, just have you looked at yourself lately? (laughs) I've been looking at myself going, whoa, man. It's not like this. You know, it's the arc is, of life is like, you know, like that. It's just mm, cliff. And we try to push that out a little bit. It just, you know, so you jump a little later off the cliff than I do. But I mean, really. And how many of us have, you know, have, have had things? How many of you have purchased a, a brand new car and it was the joy of your life for six months? And then you're like, we got to trade that in. It just doesn't do it for me anymore. Lost the new car smell and that guy's got a better one. Anybody? I've dreamt about it. (laughs) But our inheritance, like our new life, can never perish. It can never spoil. It can never fade. Church, do you know that you have that because of what Jesus did on your behalf? It is yours now. No one can take it from you. And it can never perish, spoil, or fade. And and I wrote this down as it it can't die. It can't decay. It isn't tainted by sin and corruption. You won't ever get bored with it. Amen? You won't need to upgrade it. It can't be taken from you. Amen? It is totally the opposite of this life. Your inheritance, like your new life, it is eternal. Words fall short. And finally, Paul says, they're starting at the end of verse 4, this inheritance is kept for you in heaven. How many of you put meat in the summer heat? No, you put it in the freezer or the fridge, right? You preserve it. There's a place for it. The things of heaven, your inheritance doesn't fit here just as you don't belong here. Your inheritance is not of this world, just as you are not of this world. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Jesus, God in the flesh, the Spirit came to show us what it's like. And that's why He talked to us over and over about things that we can understand in the flesh to point us to the spiritual reality. You must be born again. I go to prepare a place for you. In my house are many mansions. And we're, and they're using terminology and there's a field and there's, 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 there's seed and all this stuff is pointing to spiritual things that we, we have yet to even comprehend truly what these things are for us. But they are yours through the resurrection because Jesus is alive. 
And the reason that is, these things are imperishable is because it is not, not of this world and neither are you. It is kept in heaven. And Jesus told us, don't store up for ourselves treasures on this earth where things are to come and destroy it and it's going to fall apart. Don't build your life here. Live the way the king told you to live, church, so that you are depositing into the eternal realm. You're transferring markets, so to speak by how you live and what you do and what you use and all these things. The rewards go up there and they will never perish. I mean, Jesus said, man, people do their things in a certain way so they receive the praise of men, men and they go, hey, that, there's your reward. Enjoy that. Attaboy. How long does that last? I mean, who got the Academy Award in 1982? Some of you weirdos know this. But I mean, no one cares. <laughs> right? But our treasure is in heaven where the focus of our heart is. And here we are in the end where our risen Savior is. And those who are born again, born of the Spirit, part of the heavenly kingdom, our hearts are to be focused on that sure hope that is revealed when Christ returns from heaven to get us. And Paul said to the Colossians, a different group of people in a different city, in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, when he's writing a letter to them, he says, since then you have been raised with Christ. In other words, your position, you've been bought and paid for, and it's as if you are with Christ right now in heaven. You are his son. That is where your position is. You're just waiting to get there. He says, set your hearts on the things above. That's where your home is, right? Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When we received Christ, we died to this world and the old life. And his life now gave us new life, life by the Spirit. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So Peter has given all these reasons to praise God because of the hope of the resurrection. We have new life. We have a living hope. We have an inheritance. It is not changing, church. It is yours because of Christ. And by the way, how do I know that this is going to happen? What's the security here? Who through faith shielded by God's power until the coming salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. God shields us as we put our trust in Christ. Perhaps some of you believers this morning are like the people that Peter has been writing to. You've been having a tough time. You've been putting your eyes on the circumstances and things are getting you down and the hope of this world is wearing you out. The things that you once enjoyed, just the life isn't there anymore. I think the Holy Spirit would have you look up again. Look up again. Where is your hope? This is not your home. This is not your end. This is not your inheritance. This is not your hope. Your hope is as sure as God rose Jesus from the dead. Your eternal life is eternal life because, as Peter says in verse 5, you, through faith, are shielded by God's power. God did it. He's going to make good on it. Enjoy. And then you ask God, what am I here for? I want more. More to come in. I want more people to hear the message. I want more people that I'm working in their hearts and I'm showing them the reality of this life is going to be shaken and there's going to be nothing left. 
And I want them to come to me. I want them to have life. And I'm going to use you to do it. By how you live, by how you, what you act, by what you say. As you preach my gospel in word and deed. You were saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus and you will be sustained by God's grace through faith in Jesus until Jesus brings you home or he comes and gets you. Until he brings that ultimate salvation when he comes. But keep looking up, church. Continue in love and obedience in Jesus and may he be your greatest treasure. He is faithful and he is true. And he will deliver on his promises to raise you to his side because he is the resurrection and he is the life. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter says. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth, the rich, deep truth of your word. And I pray that it would minister to the hearts of people here this morning who know you and love you. And Father, for those who are apart from you, who do not know you, who have never called on your name, and your Spirit is calling them this morning, they know that the weight of their sin is upon them. They know that they are not saved. They are living apart, and there's a war going on in their heart right now, Lord. I ask that you would break through. I ask that you would reveal to them that Jesus Christ died on the cross and that through faith in Him, their sins are forgiven and they have new life and have become a child of God if they put their faith in you. If that's you this morning, I want you to raise your hand and we will pray for you. You will pray with God. Anybody there? Raise your hand now. God bless you. Anyone else? This is it. This is eternal life. It's offered. He loves you. He's, he's given it freely. Anybody who wants it, raise your hand. This is not between you and me. This is between you and God. But you raise your hand as a sign of faith and then you pray. God bless you. Will you pray with me in your heart? Lord God, I know I'm a sinner. And I believe that you died on the cross to save me for my sin. You took my place. And I believe that you rose again. And you have power over death. And that you will raise me after I die. And I believe that I'm now your son. I am now your daughter. And that I have everlasting life because of the work you've done on my behalf. Thank you. And if you believe that in your heart and you confess it with your mouth and your lips, Jesus says, God says you're saved. And you might be going, well, I didn't see anything. I didn't feel anything. Well, what God says often happens in the realm of the Spirit. And there aren't a lot of things associated with it physically sometimes. It's through faith that we're saved. You believe and you're made right with God. And for the rest of us this morning, Lord God, may we have our hearts set upon you. May our joy be in your throne room. 
when things get difficult, may we not complain but anticipate the day that we're going to be delivered from this. And so God, lift our hearts now where you are, risen, seated at the right hand of the Father. We pray this now in the name of Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen.